I'm John Crane. And I'm Bernie Crane. You're listening to the Jazz Session. With our dad, Jason Crane. Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 441 for the week of July 28th, 2014. On today's show, pianist Kevin Hayes talks about his long career in jazz and his new crowdfunding project for his new album. You can find that project at pledgemusic.com slash projects slash Kevin Hayes, H-A-Y-S. Again, that's pledgemusic.com slash projects slash Kevin Hayes. And of course, there's a link to that at thejazzsession.com in the notes for this show. First things first, I'm not dead. The last one of these shows was June 9th, which is about seven weeks ago, I think. And there's really no excuse for that. There probably are reasons. Uh, I, you know, have been much busier now with my new job managing Webster's Books in State College, Pennsylvania, etc., etc. But there's really no excuse. I certainly could have had time to, I did have time to make a show in the last seven weeks and didn't. So I apologize to Kevin Hayes and to all of you, uh, Kevin, for how long he's had to wait between the interview and the actual show, and to all of you for how long you've had to wait between the last show and this one. Long enough, in fact, that uh, my good friend Richard emailed, you know, to make sure I was alive. Uh, an email to which I'm not even sure I responded, so, <laughs> so I'm just a horrible person. Let's just let's just chalk it up to that. Uh, anyway, here's another show, and I've got one more in the can uh, from an interview I did in Rochester with guitarist Bob Snyder. I'm having a hard time getting to New York frequently enough to do these things every week. Well, obviously, I'm having a hard time doing them every seven weeks. But I'm having a hard time getting to New York enough to be able to just record blocks of interviews and put them out. I hope to make a trip to Pittsburgh soon, during which I'll record a block of interviews and put those out. There's a lot of cool people there. And then after that, I'm not quite sure, nor am I quite sure how frequently the show will come out, uh, more frequently than once every seven weeks, though, I think. But I'm not promising anything. If there's one thing I've learned about my life and this program, it's that it's very hard to promise anything with it. I just need somebody rich to give it a pile of money. Is that so much to ask? Oh, now the neighbors are hammering something. I think they must be building a rocket ship. That's my only that's my only guess. Uh, anyway, here comes some music from Kevin Hayes, followed by my interview. And just don't forget, please go to pledgemusic.com slash projects slash Kevin Hayes, H-A-Y-S, okay? And help Kevin make his next record.
My guest is pianist Kevin Hayes. Thanks for being here, man. My pleasure. Great to see you. Great to see you, too. Uh, you're one of those people you know. I've been listening to throughout a lot of my radio career. We're pretty close in age, and uh, I just you're someone who's always been around while I've been playing jazz music mm-hmm. on the radio. Um, always enjoyed your playing, and it's great to have you here. And uh, we're going to, I think, start by talking about something that when I first learned of you did not even exist, which is crowdfunding, mm. um, but has now become a big thing in the world of music of all kinds. Right. Uh, and it's something that you're about to embark on. Maybe we can start right there and tell yeah, folks about that. Yeah, I guess with the changing, uh, shifting landscapes of uh, the record business, uh, this has become uh, uh, one of the one of the main options for funding your, your projects. And uh, I had done one uh, in 2006 for Artist Share. And, um, so this is a kind of a, uh, it's not a new model. Obviously it's based off the same kind of thing. I think artist share might've been the first. Uh, I think so. Yeah. And, uh, but you know, there's obviously Kickstarter and all these things, but I'm going to uh, be working with a company, uh, called pledge music, uh, which is, uh, as its name implies, uh, specifically for music. It's not building any kites to the moon or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> Though I would totally fund the Kevin Hayes kite to the moon. Kite to the moon. To the moon. say that right out loud. Well, right I've, now, I've so. been collecting string for okay, many years. I'm, so I'm on board. I'm just saying. I'm, yeah. I've got a few more knots to tie. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, so this is specifically with that and uh, working with producer Matt uh, Pearson, who's who's uh, been working with this company. So we're, uh, we're just about ready to launch, kind of ironing out uh, – the different aspects of uh, the uh, the campaign, and uh, it'll be with um, uh, a new group that I've been working with the last couple of years. Actually, I guess it's not too new, but our first recording, uh, the New Day Trio, with uh, Rob Jost on bass and Greg Joseph on drums, um, and we've been uh, playing for the last uh, probably year and a half um, at uh, the 55 Bar uh, every month. Um, and uh, it's been really uh, a great place to just kind of work out the material. I'm going to be playing mostly Fender Rhodes, but maybe doing some piano work as well. Um, and uh, that's uh, kind of where we're at. We're going to have some special guests uh, if all goes well. Um, probably shouldn't say who they are yet until they <laughs> get confirmed, but uh, I believe we're in good shape have some really cool guests with us and uh i'm really excited about the new recording and talk about the repertoire that's going to be on this album the repertoire will be primarily uh my own uh originals um i've been writing a lot and uh working out this material some on the road and as i said at the 55 bar regular gig and a couple other gigs around uh around town and uh we've done some touring in europe and uh just trying to develop the material. So basically new tunes. I might do a couple of things uh, that uh, we've also been playing. Um, this uh, Rodriguez tune, Sugar Man from the film, which is a really great tune. We've been uh, opening that up and uh, uh, a couple other things. Um, so we'll we'll see. But, uh, Talk about the new Day Trio and the kind of the genesis of this, yeah. this band. Yeah, well... Um, uh, the band, uh, you know, I met these guys. Actually, the drummer was a roommate of mine in Brooklyn when I was living in Park Slope, uh, Greg Joseph. And both of these guys, both Rob and Greg, um, uh, though they certainly are well, uh, well steeped in the jazz tradition, they also 
have their feet in the singer-songwriter world. You know, Tony works with, uh, I mean, uh, sorry, Rob works with Tony Cher, um, who I will say now hopefully will be one of the special guests. <laughs> the secret's out. Um, and uh, Tony played with us recently at uh, 55 Bar, and it was fantastic. Tony's got this great slide guitar thing. So, um, uh, so yeah, in terms of the material, it's kind of uh, genre-bending, <laughs> some material that, you know, it's going to be coming out of some different zones of my own music that, that interests me and, you know, from the country world. And I've really been checking out a lot of Johnny Cash lately. But also, you know, there's going to be a lot of blowing, you know, and changes. So the jazzers will be, you know, hopefully happy, <laughs> uh, as, as hopefully I will be. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's a kind of a, with all the different influences that uh, have inspired me um, over the years, different kinds of music, uh, it's a bit of a mashup uh, that way. So even and, from the classical world and just things that I've taken from different areas. And did you choose Robin Gregg for that reason? People who could kind of versatilely move across the Yeah, I think, I think so. You know, Gregg's played a lot of singer-songwriter stuff, you know. Both these guys have done some Broadway work, so it's like kind of got some different stuff coming, you know. Uh, Rob is recorded, he's also plays French horn, so he'll probably do some playing on that. You know, he's done some recording with Bjork and, uh, you know, uh, these different cool musicians. So it's kind of a different thing than uh, my last trio, which was more of a straight ahead jazz thing. Sure. Uh, more or less uh, with Bill and Doug, uh, Bill Stewart and Doug Weiss. Um, so anyway, uh, that's kind of the idea, yeah. And uh, why Fender Roads? I mean, obviously at 55 Bar there are practical implications of why Fender Roads because that's what's there, mm-hmm. but uh, also appearing on the album. Yeah, well, I've had a long relationship with Fender Roads. Uh, just played a lot over the years. It's an instrument I've always felt an affinity for. Uh, I, you know, probably back from the days of when I was a kid listening to Stevie Wonder and Steely Dan. You know, uh, I even seem to remember, yeah, didn't like Bill Evans did some recording on Fender Roads. Yep. You know, or Chick, you know, like these yeah. kinds of, um, but I think, uh, and certainly, you know, the stuff with Miles and all that kind of thing. But, um, and certainly I've recorded on Rhodes before. Sure. Uh, one of my Blue Note records, uh, I recorded on, screwed the song Hot Quartet with Seamus Blake. We've done that, um, Chris Potter, I've played Rhodes. Uh, so it's been there all the time. And um, in terms of the, uh, you know, playing it more and doing it, this, this monthly gig at the, at the 55 bar uh, has been, uh, so it's been kind of opening up and getting to some different textures. I've got some different effects boxes and just getting a, going anywhere from a gritty kind of, uh, sound to atmospheric kinds of things using delays and you know different uh effects um to get uh some different textures the the fender roads to me i feel similarly about the fender uh about pianists playing fender roads as i do about saxophonists who do not play soprano saxophone doubling on soprano saxophone which is that you can always hear if a person is actually comfortable on the instrument and kind of understands the nuances of how it works um, because it feels it's it just sounds to me like a very different beast. It's not as easy as oh yes, it has keys and there are black ones and white ones. Right. It's a whole other animal. It really it it really is. Uh, 
you know, I play it completely differently than I play a piano. I mean, you kind of can't. I can't play it. It's just the mechanism is completely different. Uh, the way, yeah, I mean, the way, I suppose it looks similar. And if you open it up, you've got hammers. Sure. But you've got not strings, but these metal tines that have to really vibrate well, much more than a string. And you've got these plastic uh, hammers with rubber heads on them that generally fly off at times. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no comment on the uh, equipment <laughs> problems at the 55 bar. But uh, anyway, it's a very different beast. Uh, and, uh, you know, I have to – sometimes I have to be careful that I don't uh, be – you know, I'm not causing the rubber things to fly off because I tend to play it a little harder than the – you can't – play it this with the same kind of touch you you have to kind of dig in and not to mention you know just my hands not uh, freaking so it's uh it's a different kind of thing um and uh, i kind of feel like i go into another zone uh even in my music making head uh when when i'm playing that instrument it's like i it's it's just another thing it's like um I'm trying to think of an analogy but uh, my body reacts differently to it. It's the sound. Obviously, it's uh, with the amp. You're getting a whole other thing. Obviously, it has no acoustic sound whatsoever. You know, it's, uh, it's like electric guitar. You have to plug it in. Sure. You know? <laughs> and uh, but it's uh, it's really fun. Does it take you to a different place compositionally, too? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think so. Although I will say that I think that comes out more in the performance because I've played a lot of the same material with piano, you know, and I just play differently. So in a way, it's almost a different piece. I mean, obviously, the melodies and things like that, basses are the same, but um, I just... It, it, you can do so many different things uh, with the roads that you can't do with piano. Of course, the reverse is true. You know, um, it doesn't have the same nuance that's possible in terms of touch. Um, but it's uh, it's a cool instrument. 
You mentioned, uh, I, I thought maybe we could fill in a little bit of your history for folks who might be being introduced to you in this conversation. Um, you mentioned recording for Blue Note, which is, I think, probably around the time that I, mm. you first came to my knowledge when I was doing jazz radio um, back in those days. Uh, will you talk just a little bit about how you got started as a recording artist? Kind of those yeah, early, early my first days? record uh, I did in, I think it was, yeah, 1991. Um, I didn't have much experience in the studio at all. I'd made, I'd been on a couple of records. Uh, I think the first record I did was, might have been a Ron McClure record for Steeplechase. Um, Bill Stewart was on that, sort of early days of meeting him. Um, and from there, uh... Let's see. No, I have to backtrack. So, <laughs> so my first record was on a Japanese label called Jazz City that was run by some studio owners and a partner in Tokyo, I think it was, uh, by the Masuo. I don't remember his last name now. Anyway, they had a studio down in uh, Tribeca, Green Street Studios. And uh, so they contacted me um, after after making a record, one record for their label with somebody else, saxophonist, if I would be interested in doing my own record. Of course, I jumped at the opportunity, and I got up the courage somehow to uh, get Joe Henderson on the record, uh, to ask him to be on the record. And he was living in San Francisco, and so I got his number from Don Sickler, who was a guy I knew in New York who had contact with him. And um, he was like, yeah, I can make it. <laughs> so <clears throat> that was the first record. and um, So you just essentially cold called I Joe cold Henderson. called Joe Henderson. <laughs> you know, it was a pretty, pretty, pretty bold move. But, you know, I knew that he had been recording. He had been doing some side mandates, you know. This was before, you know, I mean, obviously, he was a legend to yeah. being great, and everybody knew that. But he but, had kind of a renaissance. Yeah, I mean, popular. Yeah. You know, popular was he? You know, he, he couldn't, I guess, command kind of audience that Sonny Rollins could command. Sure. These kinds of things. He wasn't a, a star on that level, yeah. which is crazy to me, but nonetheless. And uh, so, so yeah, he uh, he was on it, and Steve Wilson, and Scott Colley, and Bill. Uh, players that I had been playing with and knew. So that was my first record. And uh, w was it an easy leap to the the kind of world of Blue Note and that kind of thing? Was it? Uh, um, yeah, I mean, same kind of thing. You're going to the studio. But, uh, yeah, obviously it had more uh, visibility. They had obviously better access to the press they had more money to spend on promotions kind sure. of thing and uh it was a great honor to be on that wonderful label i grew up listening to those records and really uh loved all the music you know that i had come up on basically besides the, obviously there were other labels columbia and this kind of thing miles davis records sure and, Verve and all that, but uh, yeah, it was really cool and uh, had a little bit more of a budget to to go into maybe better studios and this kind of thing. 
And you were at that same time doing sideman work with a lot of yeah you know, very well known people mm. yourself. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I was working with. Uh, uh, I guess it, in those years, I did a stint with Sonny Rollins. Um, you know, working around town with different players, uh, my peers, and older musicians. Uh, you know, several different saxophone players. Benny Golson I worked with a bit in the early mid '90s. Um, worked with Schofield, with uh, the you know my my kind of crew with Seamus and Larry yeah. and Bill. Um, and yeah, so I was doing some sideman work as well. Yeah. Is there a, uh, or in your personal story, for example, getting a call from Sonny Rollins, is there, was there an, still an element of, holy crap, I'm getting a call from Sonny Rollins? Yeah. Involved with that? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. In fact, you know, after I did that, the first record, uh, with Joe, he called me to play some gigs and I remember the, the excitement, you know, it was like. I was roommates with Bill Stewart at the time, and I came home one night, and he said, Joe called. I said, Joe who? Because, <laughs> you know, this was before cell phones, so there was a tape answering machine. Sure. And he said, Joe called. I said, Joe Henderson. I said, man, come on. You can call me, you know. <laughs> and uh, sure enough, there was a voice on the machine, you know. you know. I don't know if you're in town or out of town, but I got a gig in San Diego. So that was very exciting. And, uh, yeah, I was pinching myself the whole way. And Sonny, uh, Al Foster recommended me for Sonny or recommended me to Sonny's nephew. And Sonny was holding auditions, basically. He came to New York. New York. I mean, he lived in New York. Sure. Uh, but he uh, was holding auditions down in Carroll at Carroll Studios. And, you know, I went in there and played. And my friend Billy Drummond was on drums, so I knew him. And so, but yeah, I was definitely nervous, and so well, I, I'm just gonna see if I can have fun or something, you know. Forget it, you know. Yeah. Forget about it, and if he likes it, he likes it. He called me a few days later and said, "Okay, it seems like everybody liked it, you know." It was everybody, you know. You're the leader, <laughs> exactly. you know. <laughs> but uh, so that was cool. And he's an incredible force to be around, you know, that just such such an improviser, such an incredible you know, his his time and everything, you know. And um what I'll mention to folks who are listening, Sonny's been on this show three times, so people can go in the archives and hear those. Mm-hmm. Uh, for you as a as a pianist, what is it what did it require of you to play with Sonny? I mean, I know Mechanically speaking, it's no different than playing with anyone else. But just in terms of the level at which he's improvising, that kind of thing, what did it demand of you? Well, yeah, I think for me, I mean, I always uh, love the challenge of comping, you know, and kind of the 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 rhythmic the rhythmic things that I could do as you know, percussion instrument, uh, and, and the harmony that I could, could work with, but you have to be careful as a comper that you're not forcing the soloist into some zone they don't want to be in. So obviously with Sonny, uh, there's so much going on, you know, harmonically. It was the same way with 
Joe, obviously I didn't need to feed them anything. You know, they, sure. if anything, they were feeding me the changes. You yeah. Know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it was just really a cool challenge, you know, um, to support what he was doing without getting in the way. But also I had the sense that he wanted me to push him a bit, you know. He liked it that that I had maybe some different chords that might be coming his way, you know. Yeah. And um, I, it's a funny story. It's somewhat related because I think soloistically and harmonically, you know, chord comping and solo, they're not so different in a certain way for me. Um, when I teach, I talk about this. Uh, but uh, I remember one time we were on a gig somewhere and he – I've been messing around with playing kind of freely over some of the stuff harmonically and taking some chances and and uh, we were going about to go out on stage and he said, "Why don't you take the first solo on this and you know play abstract <laughs> <laughs> So I said, "Cool, you know, I got the green light from Sonny, you know." in the 2000s uh, went out to the southwest mm-hmm. um, a, a really place we both lived in a, a really beautiful area um, and kind of took a break from this world and from <laughs> recording I don't mean this world the planet well, Earth it I was mean the San- world of New York it was Santa Fe <laughs> that's so true it yes, might have been this world in the vortex <laughs> yeah, exactly um, but can you can you talk about that and and what that was like for you and and then what it was like for you to to return yeah. here and kind of the yeah reestablishers yeah I mean I uh, kind of went through a bit of a dark period in my uh, where was I <laughs> uh, in my mid to late thirties where I just felt sort of burnt out and. Uh, for lack of a better word, in some kind of depression state, you know, just not really, you know, dealing with some personal stuff and dealing with, uh, you know, where do I fit in, you know, in this world? So, and in, you know, music and my relationship to music and myself and 
so doing doing some kind of personal seeking, I guess you'd say. So I go where everybody goes to Santa Fe, <laughs> right. you know. <laughs> uh, but anyway, all jokes aside, it was very um, very healing place for me, and uh, took some time. I did make a record when I was out there, um, although I didn't make it there. I wound up making it in Germany. I made a solo record called Open Range. Um, but I definitely, you know, I took a fair amount of time to uh, to reflect and uh, uh, address address some stuff. So, Were there periods of time where you weren't playing at yeah, all? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the piano would get kind of dusty out there you know sure with the the desert sand you know but uh yeah i just kind of got a little casita out there and just uh tried to uh work it out you know and uh um so yeah i spent i guess it was four years there and you know did do some touring in a limited on a limited basis uh and and playing out there uh, some trips back to New York to do a few gigs, um, but was a bit dormant, and uh, and then moved back to New York. Um, I had actually initiated towards the end of that. I initiated uh, a call to Brad Meldow um, to see if he would be interested in doing a piano thing. I kind of felt like I needed to connect with another pianist, you know. Yeah, and uh, he sure is one, and. Uh, fantastic musician and uh, so we got started on this project this uh, modern music project where i said you know i want to do like some classical kind of coming from class i had been studying listening to strauss and brahms and i i knew he was into that stuff and um we had talked about that a bit and uh so that was sort of the genesis of that project that came out a couple of years ago uh on nonsuch um, got Patrick Zimmerly, the composer, involved. So, um, so I moved back, uh, actually not far from Brad upstate. Uh, my friend Doug Weiss, bass player, um, was up there. There's a really nice venue up there called the Falcon, and I knew people up there. I wasn't sure I wanted to move back to New York City with all the craziness quite yet, and so um, I used Marlboro, New York, as a as a transitional sure uh, outpost. You know. Yeah, during the time. In Santa Fe, or when you came back to the east from Santa Fe, did you notice differences in your playing? Had you had you come up with some new? You said you went partly to work on your relationship with music, in addition to your your own personal stuff. Did you see changes? Did you feel changes in yourself as a player? Or yeah, I think something probably did start to shift out there. Um, maybe that recording, uh, the open range recording, as it title perhaps suggests. Yeah. Uh, was you know re- represented some of those changes but uh had an interesting experience you know because i really wasn't playing very much you know i just i uh i had a gig with nicholas payton he'd called me to do a gig somewhere and uh you know he, he after the gig he came up to me he said man whatever you're doing out there in new mexico keep doing that <laughs> you know? wow so i guess i was you know maybe on the right track if something was opening up in me uh that wasn't necessarily coming directly from practice yeah you know uh but 
and I've always sort of felt and believed that that the music that I feel closest to, whether it's improvisation or composition, um, I think comes from a place that is n- not so much about toiling at the instrument itself and certainly not to say that practice isn't important, but it's a kind of practice, you could say. I'm actually studying with someone now that, and and in, and in a way that my one of my primary teachers said this as much that you make music you when you practice it should be playing you know mm-hmm. there's really shouldn't be a separation even though there's some repetition involved sure but it's coming perhaps more like a kid a child might repeat himself you know right there's something else going on rather than it becoming about strengthening muscles and uh this kind of thing uh or or kind of a grind uh maybe more of a coming from a more joyful place or or some other kind of uh place so i'm going to give my own uh armchair kevin hayes analysis here and you feel free to push back very hard against this if you like but i would in my estimation or my opinion that your to my ear, your career has had kind of two distinct phases. When I first discovered you in the 90s, it I felt very much like you were kind of in that, not as traditionalist as the Young Lions, but kind of at that, at that same time when all mm-hmm. that, a lot of that stuff was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and now it feels to me like um, – and actually I didn't, I didn't really know all that much until I started researching for this interview about the Santa Fe thing. But in the more recent years, it's felt like that – like that was a – uh, a stage you went through and internalized that music yeah. and then passed through and came out the other side. And now there's a whole other thing that's happening. That seems fairly accurate. Yeah. Um, you know, when I was coming up, I had my heroes just like everybody, you know, and I think that, um, I might have spent a little more time with those heroes than, than others who came out the other side. You sure. Know? I might have spent longer in the tunnel. But maybe that was part of the, the sort of um, searching that I've needed to do. Uh, you know, there was a period of time like, you know, I, for instance, one of my heroes was Herbie Hancock, you know. So I was just like, well, and I remember talking to people about that. I remember talking to Rini Rosnes about this at one point because I was going through kind of my identity crisis. This is like, you know, how do you get better than that? I mean, who... Who plays with more swing? You know, so I had a, I was a bit misinformed, I think, in a certain way. You know, it's like I didn't, you know, I didn't come up in the '40s and the '50s when they would throw a symbol at your head, <laughs> right? If you started copying somebody, right? You know, it would have been helpful. Sure, yeah. Should have That's asked Bill motivator. to throw a symbol at my head. You know, <laughs> like what are you doing, man? You know, yeah. But so I had both the blessing and the curse of having fairly good imitative powers. You know, it can be problematic. Um, And a little unsure about, or not being able to totally trust my own musical instincts. So, um, so it was a bit of a, maybe I'm a bit of a late bloomer situation. Uh, But um, I'm, I'm grateful that it's, slowly 
coming into focus, what it is that I really like. And I mean, you carry all this stuff with you, you know. I'm I'm very happy, you know, to have checked out the guys, Witten Kelly and, you know. Sure. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I feel happy that, that I, that I, when I play now, there's a sense of connection with me. And also, I feel very proud to be a part of this tradition. Uh, you know, uh, as Herbie himself, uh, we had a conversation once and talked about being a link in the chain. You know, we are a link in the chain. He's like, Herbie said, you know, no Bill Evans, no Winton Kelly, no Herbie Hancock. It's true. If you listen to him, you know, you hear it. Um, the same as, you know, no Paul Blay, no Keith Jarrett. You know what I mean? I mean, in the way that, I mean, Keith probably would have found his way. You sure. know, the guy's a genius, you know. But uh, we are all connected. And uh, so I had to sort out these things just like everybody does. And I knew that I wouldn't be satisfied by merely imitating it's one thing you know everybody we're stealing i'm i'm stealing you're stealing we're all stealing absolutely you know from everybody else that's the name of the game um but uh you know that's kind of how i see it so it's you're not far off at all and now having having come out the other end of the tunnel when you <laughs> teach other people does that al- are you able to give them any kind of a head start or is it is it just something everybody has to go through their period in the tunnel themselves yeah, I've been doing a fair amount of teaching lately, and uh, ultimately, yeah, we have to find our own way. But in some cases, depending on where they're at, I need to reinforce their fundamentals. You know, I have to say, you got to go back and listen to the bebop players. You know, you got to check out some Sonny Clark. You know, you need to check out Bud Powell. Um, Even starting, you know, in a way, I've become a little bit of a stickler about it, perhaps just because it was my experience that it really helped me uh, get grounded in that stuff um, in order to to move forward. Um, But, you know, even I'd say, you know, Bill Evans, you got to go further back than that, you know. Right. (laughs) Um, But anyway – uh, and to uh, not really to play devil's advocate, but just to get you to say it, why? I just think that because that's where they were coming out of. I mean, Schoenberg checked out and did, you know, what did he do? Haydn transcriptions, you know, and everyone's studying Bach. Why, you know, is it? Because it's <laughs> what you study, you right? Know, it's, um, yeah, I just think it's it's fundamentals. That what I do now, in terms of maybe my linear language, I it wouldn't. I don't think I could. It would have the cohesive, if it does, <laughs> to whatever extent it does, the cohesiveness. If I hadn't checked out that other stuff, you know, to learn out how learn how to resolve and where how do you use tension and resolution and in linear language to imply harmony and Charlie Parker and you know Monk and these guys, you know, 
So, uh, yeah, I just think it's part of the deal. Yeah. Well, man, it's been a it's been a real pleasure. Like I said, I mean, as long as I've at least been in professional jazz radio, you've been on my landscape and one of the people whose records I, I've always enjoyed playing. And uh, I feel like it's an oversight that you haven't been on until seven years into this particular show, but I'm really glad you were here today, so thanks for doing it. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Great to see you, Jason. music from Kevin Hayes. Remember, Kevin's got a brand new album that he would like to make. To help him make that, go to pledgemusic.com slash projects slash Kevin Hayes. You'll find a link to that in the show notes for this episode. Thanks so much to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. They are online at respectsextet.com. Thanks to Dave Rabel for the logo of the show. And if you need some freelance work done, liner notes or a press release or something hammered into a wall incessantly day after day, hour after hour, even though you live in a small apartment and what the hell could you possibly be hammering, then visit CraneWrites.com. Thanks so much for listening. Come back next time, whenever that happens to be, for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.